Let's go ahead and get started. Now that Michael's walked in, get started. <laughs> I will pray for us and then we will dive in as usual. So let's pray. Oh Lord, we do ask that you would just ready our hearts as we again engage this, this fairly difficult topic of the doctrine of sin. Pray that you would humble us before your word, that we would that you would grow us in, in our in our humility and our in our hatred for sin. Would you just even through this series illuminate uh, to us and, and show us maybe areas in our lives that we did not see where we were not trusting in you and that we would that we would grow in our, in our desire and eagerness to, to submit our full life to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to continue our study through Knowing Sin, the book we're going through by Mark Jones. And the plan today is to get through chapters 6 and 7 of the book. And next week, Lord willing, Rob Webster will lead us through chapters 8 and 9. He gave his hand up. You all know who Rob is, though. (laughs) Chapters 8 and 9. And the week after that, Michael Alexander is going to lead us through um, 10 and 11. So, very exciting times. Uh, But let's begin, we'll just jump right in with uh, chapter 6, which is a chapter really on our, our response as Christians towards our sin our response as Christians towards our sin. So the last time we met, we talked about the, the doctrine of indwelling sin, and, which is the reality we all face as Christians of the presence of sin in our lives. We saw how we're, we're, we're not ever going to be free from the effects of sin and the presence of sin in our life because of the, the presence of the sinful flesh and of the, of the natural man that is still in each of us. And one of the questions that leads to, that we, that we only touched on last time, is something like, well, if sin is going to be ever-present with me in this age, in this life, then what is my response to it supposed to be as a Christian? What is my response to sin supposed to be as a Christian? And we've already said this, this truth of, of indwelling sin should not lead us to, to apathy or or laziness, and, and actively killing our sin. So what, what else do we do? What else do we do? That's, that's, that's what Jones is getting at in this chapter, I think, which is a very important question for all of us to think about as we think about the Christian life and, and discipleship. And the answer is this, simply, we need to mourn over our sin and to have godly sorrow over our sin. We need to mourn or grieve and have godly sorrow over our sin. And Jones begins with a pretty simple idea that is quite fundamental to, to our understanding of um, our response to sin. He says that to, to the degree that people hate sin, they reflect the image of God in them. To the degree that people hate their sin, they, they reflect the image of God in them. So the point is that for the Christian... The more that we hate the sin that is in us and the sin that we encounter in the world, the more we hate that, then the more we we image God, or or we could say the more we reflect his character, which is what we are designed to do, which is what we are designed to do as his created representatives on earth. And so one of the first things we need to do in response to our sin is is quite simple, is to hate it, is to have disdain for our sin, which is something we can, I think, we can very easily pray about in our daily lives. We can pray something like this every day, something like, Lord, give me a hatred for sin, and specifically a hatred for my sin that that you have. Give me the, the same vision that you have towards wickedness. And this brings up a very important point that I think we always need to have in the front of our minds when thinking about our response to our sin, which is our hatred, 
Our true grieving, our true mourning over our sin is a fruit of the grace of repentance. It's a fruit of the grace of repentance which comes as a gift from God. Meaning there's a danger of superficial mourning or grieving over sin. So we see this very clearly in in 2 Corinthians 7.10. 2 Corinthians 7.10 where where Paul talks about the difference between godly grief over worldly grief. Godly grief that that produces repentance. So repentance being being a change of mind and behavior from the sinful action or or from the sinful thought. And that, that... Godly grief that produces repentance leads to salvation. Where he's contrasting that, Paul's contrasting that with worldly grief, which presumably in the, in the context of the, of the text does not lead to repentance and therefore leads to death. So there's this godly grief and worldly grief over sin. And this godly grief is the fruit of our union with Christ and, and the presence of the Spirit in our lives as Christians. So at the most fundamental level, and this is really important, I think, to get at the outset here, at the most fundamental level, our grief, our mourning, our hatred of our sin only comes from a work of God in us. Only comes from a work of God in us. So it's not something we can therefore muster up in our own wills and our own faculties apart from God's grace. And we'll get more into all of the kind of the specifics or some specifics of how this godly sorrow and mourning works and looks in our lives. But for now, we just need to see this truth. We need to recognize this truth. This is how Jones puts it in the book. He writes, who makes us to be different from the world insofar as we mourn over our sins, whereas the pagans do not? God alone through Christ by the Spirit. Who makes us different from the world insofar as we mourn over our sins, whereas the pagans do not? Right. The fundamental answer, God alone through Christ by the Spirit. And it's that truth um, that should be that, that Jones is arguing that that truth should be our, our foundation for our understanding of our response to sin, which will guard us against any sort of pride, which is so dangerous when speaking about our sin. Now, Jones gives, Jones gives a, a quick overview of pretty much what we've seen so far in this study, in this chapter, which is helpful. He, he And he wants to show us again, which he's done throughout this book, that by virtue of our relation to Adam, we are all equally infected by sin. All of humanity is equally infected by sin. So this portion of the chapter is bringing up again the doctrines of original sin, total depravity, and he touches on indwelling sin again. Um, And he's showing us, right, that we all have, all humans, all humanities, even all Christians, have a sin issue have an issue of sin. Jones quotes the Puritan Stephen Charnock, who writes about humanity's corruption that comes from our first covenantal, or you could say our our first representative head, Adam. Charnock writes, our corruption is equal to all, natural to all. It is not more poisonous or more fierce in one man than in another. The root of all men is the same. All the branches, therefore, do equally possess the villainous nature of the root. All the branches, therefore, do equally possess the villainous nature of the root, which is the root being corrupt. No child of Adam can by natural descent be better than Adam. No child of Adam can by natural descent be better than Adam. And this way of speaking that Charnock is is writing with is very characteristic to how the Reformed have, have always articulated this position that we are equally infected by sin. Now this begs the question, I think, when, you, when, when I look out, when you look out and observe the world, not all people look equally sinful, right? Yes? Yeah, okay, good. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> not all of us are as, as bad as the most evil people in history, is one way you could think of it. So not everyone, just very basic level, not everyone is a commits murder. Not everyone is a murderer physically. 
And this is where the idea of common and restraining grace comes in, meaning not everybody, though equally infected by sin, is as evil as they could be. So that means that the the only thing keeping one man from being as bad as he could be in his very nature is God's restraining grace that he gives to his creation, which varies from each person to each person, and due to God's infinite wisdom and sovereign plan that we don't have full knowledge of. And so because all humanity shares in this the same sin nature from our first father Adam, we're all slaves to sin apart from Christ's saving work. This should be sounding like review because this is kind of what Rob went over a few weeks ago. Um, Particular sins, then, are the, the result of that sin nature being present in each of us. Our, each, each of our particular sins are a result of the sin nature being present in each of us. Each of us, And each particular sin differs from person to person. So not everyone steals or murders, but some people do. But the truth remains that there is not more sin in the person that murders who doesn't. That's kind of the big key here. So in one sense, we can say that by our nature, no one person is better than another person. So I think this is also what Jesus is, is getting at in, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about if you get angry, you, you commit a murder in your heart. So we all have, have the same poison in us, the same wickedness, the same sin in us. Jones writes... If there is any outward morality whereby one pagan surpasses another, it is purely due to the common work of God's grace. God is free to restrain as he pleases for, he, for his inscrutable purposes. God is free to restrain as he pleases for his inscrutable purposes. So sin is equal in all. And God freely restrains as he pleases for his purposes. And this, again, this, this guards us from pride. This guards us from pride because even as we think of the, the most evil people in the world, the ones who have committed the most heinous and wicked acts, we know in a very real sense that we share the same foundational evil in our very own natures, which is a frightening thing to think about, but it's something that we have to be reminded of, or we will grow in this prideful arrogance. Charnock, again, is helpful here. He writes, the best men have the worst sins in their nature. The best men have, their worst, have the worst sins in their nature, though by grace they have them not in their practice. So what does this have to do with mourning over sin? kind of this recap. Well, first, to, to truly grieve and, and hate our sin, we must know what we are hating. We must know what we, we are to grieve over. So we must know the evil that resides in us by virtue of our sinful nature that has fallen in Adam. And it gives us the right words. It gives us the right words when we, we lament to, to God over our sin. It gives us the right words to articulate the depths of our sin, the depths of our wickedness. Which is why the, I think the, the Puritans are kind of uniquely helpful in church history because they, were, they possessed great gifting in this area of, of giving words to laments to, to God. And we must have the right vocabulary to particularly art, articulate our sin and properly lament our sin to our Lord whom we've sinned against. So last time we saw that, that through the, the power of the gospel and the transforming work of the Spirit in our lives, that, that believers in Christ are no longer under the dominion of sin and darkness as, as we were apart from Christ, as we were as non-believers. And yet, sin still remains in us, what is called indwelling sin. So, just as a, by way of reminder, the, the kind of big theme we were trying to hammer home last time is though it's 100% true that we are forgiven in Christ and are made righteous in Christ's sight um, or in God's sight through Christ, we will always in this life have sin and therefore we will need to, to, to mourn and grieve and lament 
the sin that remains in us. So, what does that mourning and, and grieving of sin look like practically? Well, the first thing Jones points out is that, th- thankfully, the, the Bible is not short of narrative accounts, including sinners. Right? If you read your Bible, there is account after account of, of sinful people. And so, one of the most famous accounts of, of a mournful lament over sin is found in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, a very important psalm, where King David laments to God um, over his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. But this is not the the only example. Um, Jacob, in Genesis 32.10, proclaims how he's unworthy of God's steadfast love, of God's um, covenantal love, and kind deeds that that God has shown him. So we can see... uh, uh, in Jacob, a profound sense of a feeling unworthy, of unworthiness of God's blessing in his life because of the presence of his sin, the presence of his wickedness. So the principle we can learn here is that those that are most aware of their sin are those that are most aware that God, most aware of, of the good that God shows them. Let me say that again. Those that are most aware of their sin are those that are most aware of the good that God shows them. So Christian then, Christians then know that, that we don't deserve even the least of God's kind's acts towards us. So mourning over our sin then leads to, to proper gratitude and, and thankfulness for the blessings that God does give us, which are completely undeserved. We can also see in accounts like Isaiah 6, another very famous account, um, when a, a sinful human is brought into the, the presence of God, we see that Isaiah is undone and exclaiming, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I'm a man of unclean lips. I miss the people of unclean lips. So in God's presence, Isaiah is aware of God's matchless holiness, and his, and his, he's aware of his utter depravity before that holiness, his, his sinfulness. And Jones's point is that the same should be true of us in Christ. Now, one of the, the most important and sometimes overlooked aspect of, of mourning over our sin is simply the first step of acknowledging our sin. Of acknowledging our sin. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. So that first part. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what is key here in this verse is if we don't confess the sin that is present in us, and John is assuming here, I think, the doctrine of indwelling sin, that there, that there is sin present in the believer. But if we don't confess or even say we have sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And what? The, the truth isn't in us. And what this will do in the life of the believer is when we acknowledge our sin and we confess it, then we will, it is, I'd say, the foundational step, one of the foundational steps for our growing hatred of our sin and our grieving over our sin is an acknowledgement of it and a confession of it. So the first step in hating it is acknowledging its presence in our lives. But what is key when, when thinking about mourning and grieving over sin is that it is a, is a true mark of, of Christian maturity, or you could say just Christian godliness. Jones ends this section saying, loving God necessarily means hating our sin. Loving God necessarily means hating our sin. We love what God loves, and we hate what God hates. I think that's just a, a wonderful um, definition or, or explanation of what a Christian is and what a Christian does. We love what God loves, and we, we hate what he hates. Jones continues, the more we love God, the more we will hate our sin. And since we still have remaining sin, we will hate its presence with a holy debt. With the holy de- des- what is that word? detestation, with a holy detestation that should lead us back to the love for God in Christ. So our first response to sin that Jones is giving us 
in our lives is to mourn it and, and grow in holy hatred for it. So any questions or comments before moving on? <clears throat> Jones now moves on to the, to the related topic of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow over sin. And the first point Jones makes is one we've, we've already just covered. Um, so this is going to sound, start sounding a little repetitive. But that is that any true godly sorrow is supernatural and that it only comes from God. It's supernatural and that it only comes from God. Jones quotes Thomas Brooks, who I think might be my personal favorite Puritan. Um, Brooks writes, Godly sorrow is a plant of God's own planting. It is a seed of his own sowing. It is a heavenly offspring. It is from God and God alone. The spirit of mourning is from above. It is a supernatural power and principle. The spirit of mourning, so the, the spirit of grieving our sin, is a supernatural power and principle. So though the act of, of repentance is, is the responsibility and command given to the sinner, which it is, the, the true power of repentance and godly sorrow only comes from God, from his work in us. So our sorrow for sin, to be, to be true godly sorrow, must be done in a spirit of repentance that is wrought by the, by the spirit of God in us and transforming us into the image of Christ. So one of the hallmarks of godly sorrow that, that Jones points out and remember that this godly sorrow is, is in contrast to or in opposition to the worldly grief, the worldly sorrow, which Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7. But godly sorrow must not just merely be mourning and, and sorrow over the many punishments and losses that come with sin. And this is very important because oftentimes it's hard to recognize that distinction for us. So really there, there's, there's nothing inherently Christian about mourning the loss of something that we lose as a result of our sinful actions. I'm sure we can all think of a situation, let's say a man who commits adultery, he and publicly then decries all that sin, um, all the effects of that sin. Maybe he lost his family, he lost his reputation, right? He publicly um, grieves over that. Again, there, there isn't anything in that that we would consider as, as godly sorrow, even though it is probably a, an appropriate response. But godly sorrow is characterized primarily by the offender, so man, being mourned in grief for sinning against the offended, God. So that's the, the, the root there. Godly sorrow, as Jones puts it, transcends sorrow for the consequences for sin, transcends sorrow for the consequences for sin by recognizing from the heart that one's offense is always against God. Now again, from the outside, this is extremely hard to judge in someone. And I would even say it's, it's, it's hard to judge in ourselves at times if we're truly grieving because we offended God or because we lost something that we greatly loved. Sometimes we may be deceived to think we do have godly sorrow that leads to true repentance because we're, we're sad, we're truly broken, but in reality we're only sad because of the circumstances we face. This is a, a, a perennial danger for Christians in the Christian life. So the first principle we can say about godly sorrow is that it comes from the, the, the heart transformed by the gospel and recognizes the fence that the sin is always towards God and that is the primary thing that is grieving us that we are sinning against God. Next, Jones points out that that godly sorrow is bathed in humility. It's bathed in humility. And what he means here is, is stemming from places like Isaiah 57, that God dwells with the contrite and lowly in heart, or the, the lowly in spirit. We see this time and time again in, in the scriptures. Those that recognize their sinfulness are contrite in their spirit before um, the Holy Lord of all. Meaning true godly sorrow will only be found in a humble and contrite heart and spirit. 
One evidence of a humble and contrite heart that Jones gives is that we'll properly feel sorrow of the sins of others and and not judge them harshly. Meaning Christians know that that our sin is our biggest problem, not, not someone else's sin, not even the, those closest to us, not, 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 not even our spouse's sin or, or our children's sin or our parents' sin. This is the truth of, of Matthew 7, 4 through 5, that, that we shouldn't be hypocritical and worry about the speck in someone else's eye when we have a, a log in our own. Each of our own sin is our biggest problem, and we must first and hate and kill that sin in humility. Jones is saying that is an evidence of a humble and contrite heart, a non-condemning spirit towards others' sins. Now notice what he's not saying. He doesn't say then we just um, ignore other people's sins. That would be unloving, right? We do confront others in their sins, but we do not have a condemning, harsh spirit because we know of uh, our personal sin and sin nature. Jones also points out that, that godly sorrow is a comforting sorrow. Godly sorrow is a comforting sorrow. This is an evidence, right? He's giving evidences to us if our sorrow over sin is, is in, in, in fact, godly or worldly. One way we can know it's godly is that if it is comforting sorrow, which seems kind of counterintuitive. Sorrow, comfort. But what Jones means by comforting sorrow is that godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads us back to Christ always, and back to Christ's wonderful grace. So we get this experience of the gospel daily. So we could say that the goal of mourning over our sin is comfort in God's forgiveness in Christ. Godly sorrow will always lead to godly joy for the Christian, as we are reminded over and over and over again of the infinite grace of God found in Christ. This is a, a, a sweet reality of the Christian faith. Thomas Brooks has a wonderful quote, quote here. He says, The higher the springs of godly sorrow rise, the higher the tide of holy joy rise. The higher the springs of godly sorrows rise, the higher the tide of holy joy rise. The Puritans can just write better than me, and probably you too. They're just really good at writing. The final thing Jones says about godly sorrow is that our sorrow over our sin must be over sins great and small. Obviously, it's, I think it's, we would all confess this, it's easier to grieve and mourn over our bigger, or you could say our, our greater sins, But true godly sorrow doesn't excuse certain sins because they don't appear to be as significant, even significant to us. No sin is little before a holy God. Jesus died for all sins, which necessarily entails that all sins are a weighty thing. And I think this should should sober us. This should be a warning to us, I think. The smallest of our sins that seem to be the most insignificant need to trouble and grieve us so that we can grow in our hatred and kill those sins. And it's actually a sign that we are truly having spirit-wrought sorrow over sins. Brooks is helpful here again. He writes, An unsound heart, this is a longer quote, so stay with me. An unsound heart may mourn for great sins that make great wounds in his conscience and credit and that leave a great blot upon his name or expose him to public scorn and shame. But for sins of omission, wandering thoughts, idle words, coldness, slightness in religious duties and service, unbelief, secret pride, self-confidence, and a thousand more, such gnats as these he can swallow without any remorse. See that word picture that, that he's creating there. So I don't know about you, but that, that just hits really close to home for me. <laughs> How easy is it for us to fall into this trap from, from the enemy to, to breeze quickly by these tiny sins, these seemingly meaningless behaviors or actions, 
when we're called to hate and to detest even the slightest infraction of God's perfect law. The Puritans are really great. I hope you're seeing that. Um, Any questions or comments about this godly sorrow? We might be done early then. Okay, there you go, Rob. I know you'd come through. <laughs> I'm not sure, but, but I, I, there's, where my mind is going, there's been quite a lot written in the past year about identity and identity in Christ and how that's kind of more uh, it's modern usage of language where like the, the classical way of talking about it would be union with Christ. So, but if we're talking about those, those things as synonyms. But, but it's like you're confessing your sin in such a way that it is sacrificing union with Christ. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. I think that is, that is right and a danger we face. Um, and why I think this, this study would be important or just having a proper biblical view of... Um, our sin, because then we can have the, the right vocabulary or, or say the right things in our laments and prayers to God for our sin. Mr. Autry. I don't know. I'm going to th- not throw you under the bus, but I'm going to praise Blake. I've had, a, you might not know this, but we've had a few conversations about this topic, and I found him to be extremely helpful in this area. So I'm offering his services. He... Um, <laughs> has a lot of wisdom here um, that has been helpful to me. Yeah, I think that's ex- extremely important. And I love the idea of incorporating it into our prayer. Like this, this should be, I would argue, a, a daily thing we're doing. Like in our morning prayers, asking God to to soften our heart and to and to grieve over um, what He grieves over. Yeah, that's great. That's right, which I think gets to one of his last point that godly sorrow that leads to that joy that that uh, comfort in the gospel that there is new mercies for us every morning um, we're not trapped in this guilt and despair, which is just a I have found that to be a wonderful thing about being a Christian <laughs> so let's move on to chapter seven. I knew you all had good comments in there, so that's great chapter seven um, which Jones titles sins alternative. Sin's Alternative, this is a pretty interesting chapter. I had to go through it a couple times um, to kind of get what was happening. Uh, So this chapter really just gives us a tool, the way I'm viewing it, gives us a tool in the tool belt, so to speak, of giving practical advice or wisdom of how we can choose not to sin, given a, a particular set of circumstances. And that tool Jones articulates really is something the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs articulated long ago. The men should know that name because we just finished reading Jeremiah Burroughs um, in Discipleship. But it's best articulated in a question. And the question boils down to this. Faced between choosing the smallest sin versus the greatest affliction, faced between choosing the smallest sin versus the greatest affliction, or instead of the word affliction, you could just say suffering. So faced between the... Choosing the smallest sin versus the greatest affliction or suffering, which should the Christian choose? And really this whole chapter is about answering and exploring that question and showing how the answer to that question can give Christian ammunition or a, a tool to use in our fight against sin. So this is, I think it's a very practical and helpful question for, for each of us to think about. And the answer Burroughs gives is this, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, any affliction is to be chosen rather than any sin because there is more evil in any sin, even the least sin, than in the greatest affliction. And I think you could add even the greatest affliction. So the point Burroughs is getting at, which is actually quite counterintuitive again to our, our modern age and way of thinking, but the point is that it is better for us to face great affliction or suffering than to be guilty of sin no matter the sin. Joan, Jones puts in this great quote from William Grinnell, God's wounds cure, sin's kisses kill. God's wounds cure, sin's kisses kill. 
So the affliction God sends our way, the, the suffering he ordains for us is for our good. And the, the small sin that appears on the surface to alleviate those afflictions, to alleviate those sufferings, what he's calling sin's kisses, because they're, they're attractive, they are actually the thing that, that will end up killing us. They are harmful to us. And that really is just the main thesis, the main thrust of this chapter. And Jones is going to break down why we should always choose suffering over sin. And the first reason he, he explores is because the earthly affliction we face is temporary, while sin's punishment is eternal. So there's temporary affliction and eternal punishment. And so the point here is that, that hell is the place of eternal torment because of the punishment of sin that God's justice demands. But on the contrary, for the Christian, for those in Christ, united in Christ, our afflictions are temporary. That is the promise. Meaning we will not efface affliction, suffering, and glory. It will not be a thing that we deal with. 2 Corinthians 4.17 is so helpful here. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Beyond all comparison. Or Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I think the point of these passages are clear for the believer. Our afflictions, our sufferings, no matter how painful they may be, and we can all attest there, there is great, great pain and suffering in the, in the affliction that we face. So this is not to minimize the pain that we experience in suffering. But no matter how painful those sufferings are, they are not worth comparing to what awaits the believer in glory in heaven. Now on the contrary, Jones points out that the consequences for sin are eternal. For anyone outside of Christ, the wages of sin is death eternal death. So to rightly choose affliction over sin takes this sort of contemplation in the moment. You can contemplate about the path that both of these decisions lead. Jones says, sin leads to death and torment, but affliction leads to life and glory. So think of God's promise in, in Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love God, this is said directly in the context of suffering in Romans 8, 18 through 27. And so there's, there's, there's great hope in that passage for our afflictions and sufferings. That God is using them for our ultimate good and for his glory. There's no such promise for our sin. Sin in scripture is only talked about with, with threats and warnings of judgment, eternal judgment. So affliction is also, this is John's second point, affliction is also a, a sign, a mark of our, of our sonship of God, of our being adopted into his family. So by virtue of our adoption as God's sons, our afflictions are actually chastisements or, or disciplines that, that show God's goodness and, and mercy towards us. So if he afflicts us, if he causes us to have suffering, it is because he's having mercy on us. So that type of thinking isn't on many Christian bumper stickers, might, should be, but it's true, it's, it's vital for our, our fight against sin. God's fatherly discipline of his children is a sign of his love for us, and God uses affliction and our suffering to make us like, us, like his son, to grow us. And again, such is not the case with sin. So think of Psalm, uh, Jones points this out, Psalm 94, 12. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Blessed is the man whom you discipline. Very simple passage, very important. Our affliction through God's discipline is our blessing. Yes, sir. You could, Mark of faithfulness, like I think in Joe, like it's because of his faith that he was targeted. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's helpful. And I, I appreciate that there is a danger of going too far with that. Or I've, I've heard kind of more prosperity gospel preachers take that and say any 
<laughs> any bad thing that's happening is, well, I guess they're not taking that at all. They're, they're distorting that completely, so never mind. But I agree with what you're saying. <laughs> but I do think uh, this does need to be qualified a little bit. Jones doesn't go into this, but I think you would agree. Or if he doesn't, I, I think this needs to be said. That we don't go looking for suffering um, or affliction because it's good in and of itself. I think that's not the way to go. Rather, the point is the affliction and suffering that does come to us, which it will come to us in this life, by God's providential hand, is for our good. And it's, and it's given to us by our Heavenly Father um, for our good. So Jones goes on to say that, that when we live by faith, that we can accept our suffering and affliction because we can... We can, but we can never accept sin. So he concludes, we must always choose afflictions over sin. And it's just good to be reminded that, that Jones isn't talking about every decision we make here. I think that's what was confusing me when I first initially read this chapter. It's <laughs> like, this doesn't happen that often. But he's describing a, a common situation we'll all face from time to time. That is, choosing the right thing to do that may lead to temporary suffering over choosing sin that may look to alleviate that suffering. So you, can you see the situation he's describing? So this doesn't apply to every single decision we make in life, meaning not choosing the sin doesn't necessarily equate to suffering. He's talking here in this chapter about a specific situation we'll face. And we're going to get into some examples here in a, in a second. But we can think of situations where, where our course of action will lead to affliction if we are righteous, if we choose righteousness. And the deception, the deception that comes to us in those moments is, is that thinking that a little sin will prevent afflictions. And humanly speaking, that might actually be the case, right? It may be true that cheating on your taxes might ease your affliction in this life, if you don't get caught, obviously. If you do, then you would have more afflictions. But if you don't get caught, it, it might ease your afflictions. You might have more resources from a worldly perspective. But we need to constantly remind ourselves, which Jones helps us with, that sin is evil, always. So sin may, in, earthly, in an earthly sense, provide an immediate way out of a problem, but never the ultimate way out of the problem. And that's the distinction we, we have to keep at the forefront of our minds. Because sin is evil and not good. So we will often find that the, the sin will lead to more problems that we can't even initially see. It's going to lead to more destructive um, outcomes. And this is because, as Jones says, sin cannot beget goodness but only misery. Sin cannot beget goodness but only misery. So hopefully Jones points out how this plays out in the Christian life. Perhaps a person may be, think that, that a small sin can help him even with a larger temptation. So it goes like, oh, I struggle with this larger, more outwardly heinous sin. So if I, if I sin on a smaller scale, it can help me from going to that larger sin. Jones writes, someone might say, one quick look at this website and the lustful desire will go away. That type of thinking. And I would just say, the, the end of that action is always bad. It, it doesn't work. It's, it's what Jones called, it's playing with fire. And the great danger there is that in that process of allowing that smaller sin to take place, then the, the person's conscience uh, loses sensitivity and, and danger of these small sins, and they, they can even become to be viewed as something good. That's what we call hardness of heart, a hardness of the conscience. Because it's... it's and the, the deception is, oh, this, this smaller thing's keeping me from something worse. You see how dangerous that is? <laughs> I mean, we have a very crafty enemy. And I think it's a very, very dangerous place to be as a Christian. Now, Burrow takes this to a more philosophical level, which I don't know where I land on this, so this might be interesting. But what about the, the hypothetical scenario whereby a small sin leads to a greater good? So Burrow writes, if a man might be a means to save the whole world if he would commit one sin, if he could save the whole world from eternal torments by the commission of one sin, 
you should suffer the whole world to perish rather than commit one sin. Because there's so much evil in sin. Now, I don't really like this hypothetical from Burroughs. I understand what he's doing because it's not based in reality. But it's helpful to get to his point, an interesting position he's bringing up. We should not sin even if it leads to a greater good in our understanding of what the greater good is. Um, We can talk about that a little bit. There might be some pushback. There might not be. Yeah, and we have the biblical account of, uh, this is what Andrea pointed out to me when I was telling her of my conflict, uh, the Egyptian midwives, the lady in Jericho, what's her name? Rahab, thank you. <laughs> right. But, yeah, I've read quite a bit on this. I don't know where I personally land. Yeah, I think I'm more, I'm in the place Again, I'm, I'm kind of, I fluctuate where I land on this issue a little bit, but I am more comfortable arguing that they did not commit a sin. So whatever action they were doing, they were uh, acting to the glory of God in the fear of the Lord. Um, but it does bring up interesting questions. Yes, John. Yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom there. I'm probably more like the rabbit, off I'm just contemplating things. I'm like, that does kind of run in the face of the freedom we have in Christ, which I think was Luther would amen me. Like we are, we are free. Um, it's not this, like legalistic. Uh, Oh, Andrea, hi. I, I, would, I do think from the biblical the accounts, kind of the Jews in the attic, I do think there is warrant. This might be, you might, you might not agree with this, but I do think there is warrant to disobey or deceive wicked, tyrannical governments. Um, but that's another issue for Christian freedom. You can agree or disagree. <laughs> the final reason Jones gives for uh, choosing affliction over sin is that sin is the opposite of God. And we're almost done here. So, uh, Meaning because God is good, then, then sin is truly contrary and opposite of God. Think about this, or this is what Jones does. He kind of gives a thought experiment of the person of Jesus, this, the Son of God. Jesus couldn't sin because he is the divine person. He is the God-man. So he's not two persons. And because God is infinite in his being, any sin in God would mean God would be infinitely sinful. We could say if sin was an attribute of God, it would be of God's essence. Now, of course, sin in our immutable, infinite God is impossible, so it's not even... There is a danger to even think like this, but the thought exercise Jones puts us through here is to prove the point that sin is fundamentally contrary to God. It's contrary to God, and sin continually works against God. So sin, by the very definition, is us walking contrary to God. So the point is we should choose anything in this life except walking contrary to God, even if it means affliction for us. And so the most fundamental level, there can never be any friendship between God and sin. Therefore, as, as ones that love God and are devoted to Him, submit to His Lordship, we are Christians. We can't be ones to ever entertain sin, even what we call small sins. So when thinking about the, the question in the chapter of choosing the, the greatest suffering over the, the smallest sin... It should be understood in light of this truth, that a small sin is still a grievous evil that stands in fundamental opposition to God, always. Jones writes that our duty as Christians is to aspire so far as it is possible and by the power of the Spirit to the same view of sin as our Lord and Maker, meaning viewing sin as something that is utterly opposed to God. 
Now I want to spend maybe just one minute, two minutes on practical applications because I think this is important. So bear with me. Because um, I think this chapter can sometimes feel a little abstract, maybe philosophical. Um, let me skip down here. Okay, think of a, a, a single pregnant woman. This is the example Jones gives in the book, contemplating abortion. She, she's faced with the question, should she sin, murder, or face possible affliction, perhaps the, the economic hardship that comes with being a single mom? Right, that's a practical application of the situation. Or think of a father who lost the job. He's called to provide for his family. He's struggling to provide for his family. Can, he can choose the sin by, by, by getting money deceitfully or stealing food um, for his family to, to, a pinch, to potentially avoid the affliction and suffering of a destitute family. It's pretty much the plot of Les Mis. Um, or if a child breaks, breaks his parent's laptop from a foolish decision, he, he and no one saw. He has the, the choice to sin by lying, so he escapes the spanking or punishment that would come from breaking something. So I think we could probably think of, of more examples, but we, we all face similar situations to this in our lives. And so the tool this chapter is giving us is when faced with this type of temptation, when we're faced in this type of scenario, we must choose the affliction or possible affliction over the sin, even the smallest sin. And really, I think this boils down to faith. When we choose the sin in this way, what we're really saying and assuming is that sin can be experienced without consequences, or the consequences of sin won't be as the affliction that we could potentially face. But Jones points out, living by faith and obedience to our Lord means we can trust him to be faithful to 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 us in our afflictions. Jones writes, choosing sin essentially admits I'm choosing all of the serious consequences that come with my sin. Instead, on the contrary, we as Christians must by faith trust God that we won't sin even when it seems choosing sin will bring to us earthly sorrow, earthly affliction. That we won't sin even when it seems choosing sin will alleviate our suffering. And so that's the end of the chapter. Sorry it took us over. Um, but next week, Rob's going to lead us chapters 8 and 9. If you want to read ahead, chapters 8 and 9. And it's going to be very good. You guys are dismissed. Thanks for the comments.